Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Vince Reinhardt joins us now on our phone lines. He is, as I mentioned, the chief economist at Standish at Mellon. Vince, great to have you with us once again. And let me start by just asking you uh, for some perspective here on, on what the president might be thinking as he picks the next person to chair the Fed, be that uh, Janet Yellen for another term or, or somebody else. What indications do we have of, of the kind of person, the kind of, of, of thinker when it comes to monetary policy he's looking for? So you have to re- re- recognize that the chairman... The chairman is obviously an extremely important pick for the president, and the president is going to want to leave his stamp. That's why everybody is assuming that it won't be Janet Yellen, uh, that he's going to appoint uh, someone else, someone else on that short list. Uh, he needs someone who is comfortable with markets, uh, comfortable with economics, and also knowledgeable of the institution. It's tough to get somebody with all three attributes. But remember that they also have the opportunity to name the vice chair of the Federal Reserve Board and a couple governors. And so in some sense, don't overreact to the first pick. Uh, Think about where we are in a month or two when they filled out more of the team. Uh, Let me just ask you, you you worked uh, at the Fed, you were uh, attached to the FOMC, and I wonder if you can give us your observations on how, how a Fed chair evolves or evolves into the, the position. Uh, one can imagine what somebody would be like in that job, but I imagine the job changes him or her. He or she becomes aware of the responsibilities of the position, all that it entails. Uh, what have you observed with, with how one grows into a job like that? So, uh, you know, two case studies. Alan Greenspan understood markets, was a business economist for a very long time and policy advisor, but didn't have a lot of background in understanding the Federal Reserve as an institution. So he relied on his administrative governors, on his vice chair, to help him figure out uh, how to run the place and also to, to keep cohesion among a monetary policy committee. Uh, he grew into that job as he uh, developed his relationships with the bank presidents and, importantly, the boards of directors of the reserve banks. Uh, ben Bernanke and, and Janet Yellen obviously uh, knew the institution and, and knew the economy. They were less comfortable on markets. And so they relied on uh, the people around him who were familiar with markets and also the Federal Reserve Bank in New York. Uh, so it is a team. Uh, in t- when you're thinking about uh, the, the pick the president is going to be making, also recognize no president wants an announcement to go badly. Uh, nobody uh, dis- you know, plans to fail. And so they're going to be picking someone constrained by the fact they want markets to receive it pretty well. They also need the U.S. Senate to receive it well, i.e., it's got to be somebody that the Republican leadership uh, is willing to, to bring up to the Hill. Uh, the names on the short list are exactly on the short list for that reason. When you look at those names, how confident are you that you can predict or at least have a good sense of, of what – uh, say a Jay Powell would be like as Fed chair, or a uh, a, a, a a John Taylor. Do do we have a, a great sense of how an individual is going to act uh, if if appointed, if nominated, if confirmed? I think Jay Powell's a, a a very good example that market participants have pigeonholed 
him as dovish because he has been supporting Janet Yellen's policy while as a Fed governor. But the fact is, his role is to be a loyal governor. He's been doing administrative work for the uh, Federal Reserve. He's been, he's been working on the plumbing of money markets. Uh, he's been, been digging in and doing that detailed work. If, if, if that's the, your role as a governor, you basically delegate your voice on monetary policy to your Federal Reserve chair. You want, you want to have her back. Uh, that doesn't, that, what that means is what he's saying is public is not necessarily revealing his uh, unburnt, uh, you know, his, his complete view on monetary yeah. policy. So I think Jay Powell as a chair is different than Jay Powell as a governor. Uh, good morning, everyone. Tom Keene with David Gurr in New York with us. Vincent Reinhardt. What a great conversation we've had over the morning on the future of the Federal Reserve. Um, I was thinking, uh, Vince, walking over from television to our radio studios, how I have a bias, as do a lot of other people, which is Taylor, 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 because we know who the guy is. Do you know Vince Reinhardt, Powell Economics? Uh, so I actually, way back, way back when uh, Jay Powell was in the uh, Bush Treasury, uh, he ha he uh, uh, fostered the work I was doing at the Federal Reserve Board on redesigning US, the U.S. Treasury auction. And he let me do an experiment in auction technique. Uh, I've known him uh, when he was at the Bipartisan Policy uh, Center and his work on, on the debt ceiling. Uh, I'm, I know more about his views on market mechanics than monetary policy, uh, to be sure. But I think he's a centrist Republican. I mean, within that, where does the politics play and where will this be going back to McChesney Martin in 1951? I mean, is, is the independence of the Fed at risk because of a new veneer of politics or was it the same way with the Democrats? Uh, I, you know, when you look back to McChesney Martin, uh, remember, he's the guy who was assistant secretary of Treasury, negotiated the Fed Treasury Accord, and then turned around six weeks later to become the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Uh, so um, I think that, uh, that that's an important date in, in Federal Reserve history, but people don't always read it the right way. Uh, look. The Federal Reserve is within the government. There's a lot of institutional controls that make it independent. In some sense, the most important institutional control has been strengthened, and that is the other governors and the Federal Reserve Bank presidents have found their voice. And it, they will not take uh, too much time before they start complaining if they thought they had a chair who was uh, drifting in a manner uh, that uh, suggested influenced by politics. Great piece on the Bloomberg this morning by Craig Torres from our Eco team, uh, echoing some of the things that you wrote about in a recent note. Uh, it's 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 <laughs> the headline is it's going to stay a Yellen Fed no matter who gets the job. And I know you've written Janet Yellen has worked hard this year to constrain the next chair. Just talk a bit about that uh, if you could. Uh, we've seen a lot of things put into place here. How difficult will it be for the next chair to? Uh, I don't know if scuttles the right word, but but change the policies or the policy direction that's been put in place here, Vincent. It will take a, a, a bit. What Janet Yellen has been doing over the last year is modeling good behavior as she, she sees it, i.e., the plan on slowing reinvestments of the portfolio is very gradual. It is pre-announced well in advance. 
the decision for the next chair isn't going to be speed up the program because it's just so ingrained in market expectations. It's rather, do you let it last longer and run off the balance sheet for longer? That means you're talking about whether it ends in 2023 or 2025. Uh, uh, similarly, on interest rates, uh, I, I think that Janet Yellen unconstrained uh, probably would have acted like she did in 2015 and 16. Uh, but instead, she's maneuvered her committee to, to tighten the funds rate three times this year. What's she doing? She's modeling good behavior that Fed tightening can be gradual. And it also means the next chair doesn't have to hurry up at the beginning because she's done some of the work of renormalizing yeah. monetary policy. This has been wonderful. Vincent Reinhardt, really appreciate the time you spent with us uh, this morning. I'll tell you, David, this is what surveillance is all about, to get this this kind of guest on yeah. with perspective in the hallways, in the history. Knows the building and knows the, yeah. uh, the conference room, for sure. It's, it's just so much beyond uh, the usual blather. We've had such an enjoyment this morning speaking with Vincent Reinhardt, as we just did. Lots of Fed discussion. But right now, Nathan Sheets with PGM Fixed Income. And to get off the Fed Derby, uh, Nathan, into your international economics, uh, inflation vectors are to be kind, flat, or almost towards disinflation. I believe the word of the moment is transitory. We're being transitory. <laughs> Are we gonna? Are we exiting transitory? And what is the evidence that you or Bill Dudley or Chair Yellen will observe to know it's not transitory anymore? Well, uh, I've spent a fair amount of time recently looking at uh, global inflation performance and thinking really hard about this question that you highlight. How do we understand uh, what's been going on over the last couple of years and how much of it is structural and how much of it is, is temporary or in Janet Yellen's lingo is, is transitory? And the, the analysis that I've done suggests that what we're seeing here is something uh, pretty powerful and, and fairly uh, structural uh, for the globe. And I think there are echoes of this specifically in the United States. Exactly what's going on, I think, uh, remains an open issue. Maybe it has something to do with, with demographics. I think it certainly has to do with, with global integration and the increasing competition that the advanced economies face uh, from emerging market economies uh, like China. I think it also has something to do with the fact that maybe central banks in holding down inflation expectations may have been uh, more successful than they could have dreamed uh, 20 years ago. And uh, the risks that we face uh, in inflation now are much more uh, balanced and, if anything, are to the downside. Uh, I never thought we'd dream, I'd never dreamt 20 years ago that we'd be worried about inflation being too low. But that's really where it is in the United States and in most of the other advanced economies. You mentioned China, and I wonder uh, what you can tell us about the role that it's playing when it comes to global inflation now post-crisis as opposed to what we saw before the, the financial crisis. Well, uh, in, uh, in so many uh, sectors, 
China is uh, the international uh, price setter. And uh, wages are rising in China, which uh, cuts in one direction. But uh, productivity is also rising in China, which, which cuts in the other direction. So China is, uh, is uh, a major force in the global economy in terms of, of price setting. And I think relative to the pre-crisis period, it's just a much more mature uh, Chinese economy where the goods that it's producing are uh, more sophisticated than was the case before. It's now more than toys and uh, basic manufacturers that are coming out of, of China. What did you learn about the, the Chinese economy from the Congress that just wrapped up uh, this week? You you traveled there a lot when you were Undersecretary of the Treasury for International Affairs, knew a lot of the principles that we saw on stage there with the, the president over the last uh, week. What are these appointments? What is the, the, the dialogue that we heard there uh, in Beijing tell us about what's to come uh, for the Chinese economy? So uh, first and foremost, this party Congress was about President Xi. President Xi solidified his power uh, President Xi extended his reach, and uh, you know, by many by many uh, metrics, it's feeling like President Xi is setting himself up not only for five years but for ten years and maybe more uh, of rule. Uh, I'd say a second uh, and related observation is that there are a number of technocrats uh, in the top echelons of uh, of the Chinese government. Uh, given this uh, reorganization. And my expectation is that we will continue to see a very gradual kind of economic reform, uh, gradual efforts to address uh, leverage and credit and debt uh, in the Chinese economy. Uh, but uh, these, these challenges that they face are going to continue uh, to be there uh, in the background, given the gradual nature of these reforms. And then it just becomes a horse race between levels of credit and, 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 and debt in the economy in China, on the one hand, versus the uh, efforts, the gradual efforts to reform. And hopefully they're able to, to rebalance the economy uh, sufficiently quickly. Nathan Sheets, thanks for joining us here in our studios in New York. That's Nathan Sheets. He's the chief economist responsible for the oversight of uh, Peach and Fixed Income's global macroeconomic research team. David, we're unlocking our, our potential. We're unlocking our potential on a Friday morning. Let us unlock our potential. Carly Fiorina joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios uh, in New York, of course, former CEO of HP, former candidate for the Republican nomination for president, candidate for vice president, I should say, uh, as well, running alongside uh, Senator Ted Cruz, uh, now the founder and chairman of Unlocking Potential. And let's start there, if we could. Uh, this is a new foundation of yours. What's the, the goal uh, of it here? What have you set out, set out to do? Well, I know from almost 30 years of experience that leaders are made, not born, that leadership has nothing to do with your title or your position. And so we are lifting up leaders all across this country. I think that we need a strong civil society. The nonprofit sector deals with really pressing problems. And frequently, there isn't a lot of investment in leadership development. And so whether it's Wounded Warriors or Easter Seals or a host of nonprofits around the country, we are lifting leaders up wherever they are so they can solve more problems. I'll ask you about leadership uh, in Washington today. Uh, many have said there's a deficit of it. Where do you, where do you see it? As we've heard uh, members of the Republican Party talk about the future of it, uh, 
some who you know well, Senator John McCain, who you advised in, in 2008 as he ran for, for president. Uh, where do you see the party headed? How important is party to you uh, at this point? Well, you know, I think as a citizen and as a business person, um, what I believe is it's important to produce results for the American people. And I think the reason Americans are so frustrated with politicians of all stripes and of both parties is they don't see a lot of results getting produced. And so for me, that's what it's all about. Um, I think politics for quite a long time has been about preserving the system, running to win over and over and over. It's been about hurling insults on both sides. I mean, my goodness, Democrats have engaged in character assassination for a long time. Remember, binders yeah. full of women and John McCain was a racist and oh, it goes on and on. Uh, so I think we could right. use more leaders everywhere to focus on their job, which is to produce results yeah. for the American people. Carly, I give you major, major points for choosing to run for public office, to hope for public service in a state where there's like 14 Republicans north of Orange County. And, you know, it was a struggle and you went down in flames in California. I get that. There's 28.9% registered Republicans in California. Can your Republican Party in 18 and 20, can they find those independent voters? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think, like many Republicans, uh, um, I am uncertain where the party is going. Uh, I've been very consistent in my beliefs over many, many years. And I say that because, for example, one of my metrics of success for any government is does money move out of Washington? Yeah. Does power move out of Washington? Does decision-making move out of Washington? I think it's highly unlikely that any Republican can win in California in a national office. Okay, uh, but across Local the congressional nation, seats, yes. How can you find, in California, there's about 28% independent voters. But in the states that Secretary Clinton lost, where the president won, where you've got to go redo that energy, given the swirl of the Republican Party, how do you sell to independent voters? Well, you see, I think what Democrats missed in 2016 is people were focused on we need to try something different to produce results. Hillary Clinton was seen as a continuation of a politics of corruption and self-interest that produced nothing. And so I think the most important thing now is for this administration to produce results. Let's start with tax reform. If tax reform doesn't get done, then I think it's going to be extremely difficult. But what the Democrats found out in 2016, and what they've also found out so far in 2017, is criticizing Donald Trump, although there's plenty to criticize. Criticizing Donald Trump isn't a program. It doesn't sell. It doesn't produce results. Mm -hmm. And so while everyone's crying about, you know, what's going on with the Republican Party, that's, I think that will be forgotten if the Republican Party produces some results. And the Democrats need to get a program. They don't have one. Other then they don't like Republicans and they don't like this particular Republican president in particular. It's not a program. Had you been elected, you would have come to the office uh, as an outsider, much like President Trump. And we've seen how he struggled over these last few months to work within the constructs of Washington, D.C., with Congress, uh, through all of these legislative rules. As you've watched that unfold, as you've seen those <clears throat> difficulties, and I think everyone would say that there, there have been difficulties, 
What would you advise him to do differently? How would you have approached that differently when it comes to getting health care reform through, uh, working on tax reform? I think there are a lot of people who would quibble with the way this process has played out. You talk about getting uh, results. I think there are probably uh, people across America who just wonder why this has to happen in such a compressed time frame, why there is, if not secrecy, just so much uncertainty surrounding what's happened at a given time. Well, I think those are legitimate concerns. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I criticize the Republican Party for is they undertook health care reform is nobody knew what they were trying to get passed. If the American people don't know, they can't support right. it. And I also criticize them for doing it on a purely partisan mm. basis. That was the Democrats' mistake, and it was the Republicans' mistake. Okay. I think Trump, like any leader needs to realize that how you get things done is as important as what you get done. Right. Leaders build support for what they're doing. And they're also clear and predictable on what they want to get done, and they follow through. Carly Fiorino, whatever anybody in the critics at HP would say about you, you had a storied career up the ladder. We're going to have this discussion for a few minutes without mentioning any names at all. Every single CEO, every single corporate officer with their general counsel this morning, is talking about male and female relationships within corporations. I'm sure you've had these conversations tens if not hundreds of times. Where will the new American corporation be as good people, men and women, try to address the shock of these harassment issues of the last number of weeks? What are corporate officers to do? Well, let's just start with the truth. Nobody's shocked about this. Fair. Nobody's shocked about Fair. it. People know it goes on. Men know it goes on and women goes know it goes on. Let me also say that the vast majority of men are good men. The this is not normal behavior, but it is known behavior. And so I think the most important thing is that people are talking about it. What we shouldn't do is, and what I fear sometimes people tend to do, is overcorrect and say, well, every man is bad. Every situation is harassment. It's not. Demo politically speaking, Democrats have always wanted to say that all women are victims. That's untrue. Politically speaking, Republicans have always wanted to say there is no issue here. That mm -hmm. isn't true either. There is a real issue. I've been subjected to it myself at all levels, <laughs> at mm -hmm. all levels of a corporation, at all levels of, of public life and politics as well as in business. So let's quit pretending to be shocked. Okay. It goes on a lot. Let's acknowledge it when it does, but let's also recognize that most men are not predators. In, in unfortunately, 40 seconds, <sighs> does the government have to step in with study, analysis, or legislation on this sensitive issue? Well, I certainly hope not. Uh, because I think there's plenty of legislation that can deal with this. What's going on is a violation of virtually every company's code of conduct. In mm. many cases, it is a violation of the law. We've got plenty of laws here. What's happened, let's get real. What's happened is people have covered it up and shoved it under the rug. Why? Because right. the people who were doing it were powerful. <clears throat> they were making money. You know, everybody benefited as long as everybody kept quiet. Well, That's why. Thank it you happens. so much. Carly Fiorina with us uh, this morning on any number of themes here, including the future of her Republican uh, Party.
On heroin and opioid, what we know is a tort is a wrong. And going back to the nation's law, and I would particularly point out Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., there's an idea of people fighting for certain issues. David Gura, our next guest, Paul Hanley, has been absolutely at the forefront of not what is the movies, but is the reality of years and years and years of litigation on any number of topics, take asbestos as a choice, and Mr. Hanley has now taken on heroin and opioid. Why don't you bring him in? David? Yeah, he now representing 15 communities uh, in New York that have seen uh, upticks in costs related to the uh, the opioid crisis here in the uh, in the U.S. Uh, he joins us now on our phone lines. Let's get into the, the the legal argument you're making here in just a few minutes. Let me ask you first of all, though, to react to what we heard yesterday from the, the president of the United States. For a long time, he talked about declaring this a national emergency of some sort. He didn't go that far yesterday. He declared it a national public health emergency. What did you make of of what he had to say? Uh, and his decision to do that, do you see this as, as incremental, a step in the right direction, or uh, do you wish that he'd done more? Uh, well, uh, David, I, I wish that he had done more. As, as you indicated, the declaration that the president did make does not, unfortunately, free up the very substantial amount of federal funds uh, that a national emergency declaration uh, would. And, and, it's, and it's money that is needed in the various communities across our country uh, to deal with this uh, terrible problem. The second, the second disappointment, if you will, uh, in the president's uh, speech uh, was there was so much focus on the illegal user of, uh, of drugs, the, the, the casual user uh, taking drugs which were unlawfully uh, obtained and and the president referenced uh, drugs flowing across the border. That's a complete misconception concerning the genesis of this epidemic. This epidemic began because the pharmaceutical uh, industry in the opioid space uh, uh, commenced a decades-long conspiracy to uh, mislead uh, public health authorities and physicians what, what, about what the danger. What does the word conspiracy mean to a tort lawyer? Conspiracy for you is not. I have a conspiracy that there are children in my house. No. You don't. What does conspiracy? <laughs> what does conspiracy mean to a, What does conspiracy mean to a pro like you, Paul? Uh, well, well, Tom, it, it means an, uh, an illegal agreement to do something that's fraudulent or unlawful. And, and that, unfortunately, uh, is what happened here with respect to certain uh, of the uh, members of the, the pharm- pharmaceutical manufacturers. Let me uh, get into the, to sort of what you're arguing now. I, I know that the costs of this crisis are huge. We've had Alan Kruger on the show a couple of times talking about his work, looking at the, the effects that this crisis has had on the labor economy uh, in particular. Let's talk about the costs of treatment first. When you talk to, to folks in the communities you represent, what do they say about how much this is weighing on them? Uh, yes, psychically, obviously, as, as people succumb uh, to these addictions, but uh, financially as well. What, what kind of burden is this on the counties and communities you represent? Uh, David, that's an excellent question. Uh, let me just give you one anecdote, which I think uh, is emblematic of, of the broader uh, problem. Uh, in, in one particular county in New York that I, I'm going to not name for the moment, uh, there were two county employees in need of rehab for opioid addiction. They contracted uh, the addiction because they were injured on the, dr- on the job. These were not illegal users. And two employees, the cost for rehab was $800,000. Now, we have 
millions of county mm-hmm. employees across the country, many of whom suffer injuries on the job, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and take these uh, drugs and get addicted right. and, and, and need rehab. What, very quickly here, and we're going to come back with Paul Hanley, this issue is so important. On heroin and opioid, to use the Perry Mason phrase, Paul, when do you go to court? Is it a couple years out, or is this decades? Is this going to be forever? Uh, Tom, I think we're going to move these cases very quickly. And the reason for that is that this is a bipartisan issue, a bipartisan problem. There isn't a, uh, a responsible person in our nation that doesn't understand the need to take, uh, take these uh, kinds of steps, including the litigation steps. So I think these cases are going to okay. move very, very quickly. Give us a sense here of you've talked about uh, conspiracy, uh, allegations of conspiracy among pharmaceutical companies. Have you detected a change in tone from them uh, as you listen to uh, representatives of the trade groups, as you listen to the companies themselves? Is there is there uh, some um, regret or, or some change in policy tact from them that you've you've seen here, Paul? I, I don't really see much uh, change, uh, David. They continue to uh, blame uh, corrupt physicians for overprescribing. They continue to blame uh, drug dealers for uh, unlawfully obtaining uh, uh, these these drugs. Uh, and, and and what they always avoid is uh, is is accepting any blame for creating a marketplace. Uh, in which uh, physicians were taught by these companies uh, that it was okay to prescribe these very powerful drugs. But the for doctors long could have said time. no. That's what they're, you know, the different pharmaceutical companies' attorney are going to say, wait a minute, these are adults. They could have said no. Why didn't the doctors say no? Well, because, Tom, uh, the, the pharmaceutical companies did a very effective job of, of spreading disinformation or misinformation. Uh, they cited studies that were fraudulently put together. They cited data that was cooked up uh, that said if you were taking these drugs for pain, you could not become addicted. And, and physicians bought into that. And, and I've, I've spoken to hundreds of physicians around the country, and they said, you know, we believe this stuff. We believe these papers that these drug reps would give us and, and, and uh, these conclusions that these drugs were not effective. So, uh, so, so that's my counter to, uh, to the pharmaceutical companies pointing the finger uh, at everybody but themselves. Give us a sense, uh, if you would, Paul, of, of, of the momentum uh, at this point. It took a, a long while, longer than many hoped or wanted for the president to address this in the way in which he did yesterday when he spoke uh, at the White House. Uh, you're pursuing your cases. Others are doing this uh, in concert with you or in parallel with uh, what you're doing. Uh, I suppose a, a huge hurdle to overcome here is just awareness of this as an issue. Are you satisfied with, with that, of, of the spotlight that's being shown on the opioid crisis in the country right now? Well, I, I'm actually quite uh, pleased, David, uh, with the response of the of the media, including organizations, of course, like yours, um, that are taking this very, very seriously. I mean, you, as you know, you can't go online any morning or or pick up the New York Times or the or the Journal uh, without seeing a story about uh, the terrible things that are happening. So I think uh, I think the media has actually done a stellar job uh, in in this area and all aspects of the media of the media, you know, the sort of human interest stories to the financial stories that uh, organizations like Bloomberg uh, are, are writing. 
When it comes to, to paying for this, where do you think that the bulk of the funds are going to come from? I think a lot of dissatisfaction what the president outlined yesterday was that there weren't a lot of funds attributed to what he introduced. Is it going to come from the federal government? Is it going to come from companies like the ones that you're, you're targeting? How do you see this crisis being paid for? Well, uh, David, I think it's gonna. I think it's going to end up very similar to the way in which the tobacco crisis and uh, litigation ended up. I think there's going to be some sort of a national settlement that will involve the federal government, the states, individual counties, such as I represent, um, and there will have to be a very large table to which people will come to negotiate, and there will have to be a very, very substantial uh, pot of money a la the funds that uh, uh, were paid out in tobacco, $240 billion. Where's the pot of money going to come from? Are people that did not do opioids going to be writing a tax dollar check? You know know what the tone is going to be. I I don't say this with, 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 with any disrespect to anyone, but to that person in whatever state that did opioids, am I writing the check for them? Uh, no, Tom. I mean, the way we're looking at it is is uh, these funds are going to come from the pharmaceutical companies that created this mess to begin with. And so, you know, we're looking at some of the, as you well know, some of the largest uh, companies okay. that you that you track. Well, Paul, I got to leave it there. Paul Hanley, thank you so much. This is Bloomberg. Brian Weezer uh, deserves mention because he is textbook, uh, David Gurrow, what a top analyst does. I can't convey this enough. It's not what they do. It's what they don't do. And Brian Weezer is brilliant on that Uh, with Facebook, but with many others as well. He's been a real voice of calm and quiet within the tech hysteria. David? Brian Weiser with us now. Of course, he's a senior analyst at Pivotal. Joining us on our phone line, sponsored by Spectrum Enterprise, your nationwide provider of scalable fiber network services and managed cloud solutions. Brian, great to speak with you again. Any number of directions we could go in here. But let's start with uh, Twitter. Twitter reporting. What did you learn about uh, who's advertising on Twitter, the advertising spend uh, with Twitter from the uh, the report that we got? Yeah, you know, I thought that there were a lot of um, positive things one could infer from what they said about it. First of all, the largest advertisers, their top 100 advertisers, are increasing their spend, right, from 23% year-over-year globally, 7% domestically. Um, and, you know, the problem that a lot of uh, people don't understand about Twitter is that they, they suffer from bright, shiny object syndrome, um, where they did arguably too good a job in the years 20, you know, 12 to 2015 in selling uh, through to large brands when you had marketers who didn't really know what they were doing, but boy, Twitter, Twitter sure sounded good. Uh, and so they were able to collect money from marketers who would send a diktat down five levels below, go spend some money and figure out what to do with it. To Twitter's discredit, they couldn't figure out how to justify the spend. Um, but for a lot of marketers that you know, they realize, okay, we we got we can't justify that spending, so we're going to stop it. And that's the money that's gone away, right? Um, the money that's there is coming from marketers who actually, you know, have a sense of, you know, how to make use of Twitter as a communications platform. So that's a that's something we learned that again, they are seeing this growth from the 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 like for like advertiser that actually seems to want to use Twitter, um, self service advertiser that's getting super served. Um, with some uh, extra support. I mean, that group of clients is growing. 
Um, you know, so there's some positive uh, elements to the to the Twitter story that we heard yesterday. And now I should clarify. I mean, I, I have a now $19 price target. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's uh, you know, let's let's go all crazy or anything. Right. But it was um, there were positive signs of life uh, right. on the company. Brian, on a broader view, in the short time we've got with you today, too short a time. Do you just model these tech juggernauts, the fangs, whatever you want to label them, as 20% plus revenue growers out into the distance? No, yeah, that, uh, yeah, I get a lot of pushback on this. There's, there, there's a view that says because this advertising is necessarily is more efficient than things which came before it, it necessarily can grow in perpetuity. And it's like, no, I mean, folks, if you say the word perpetuity, you flunk (laughs) the CFA exam. Yeah, exactly. There are limits to growth. I mean, this is a a fixed uh, pie that you're fighting for share over in any given year. And the total advertising market can grow maybe 3% in the United States. And globally, you can add another percentage point. Keep going. Keep going. And so when digital advertising is presently, call it 40-ish percent of that total, and in some countries, it's much higher, if you lower. Um, it's unrealistic to assume if digital advertising kept growing at the same pace it did in the last six years and the next six years, digital advertising would equal 100% of all advertising, which is utterly implausible. And I'm you know, sorry, Tom and David, I mean, your business is gone. It means all TV is gone. It means all print is gone. Everything is gone. Not realistic, right? And so it has to slow. It has to decelerate. Alternately, if you're Google or Facebook, you could keep growing. Hey, you could get if they could get into the radio business by buying radio stations, let's just say, or they could get yeah. into the TV business by investing more heavily in premium content, see NFL programming, or or you know what they've done in India that, that Facebook bid was willing to bid six hundred million dollars on digital cricket rights for five years. Given how small the Indian market okay. is, that's the equivalent of bidding twenty four billion dollars yeah. for NFL content in the US. Right. The point is margin we, erosion. We, we're going to have to run margin erosion. Margin we're going to have to run here. Brian Weezer, too short a visit, and we'll catch up as we see earnings continue in his space of advertising, media in the internet. We go to Barcelona. We go to Houston. We do that next. This is Bloomberg. just a moment ago mentioning Bill Gates, of course, the first executive, first chief executive of Microsoft. Now the company is run by Satya Nadella, somebody who was born in Hyderabad, India, worked his way up the ranks within Microsoft after a career at Sun Microsystems, was named CEO, the third chief executive of that company in 2014. He's out with an autobiography and sat down with David Rubenstein, the co-founder and co-CEO of the Carlyle Group, also host of the David Rubenstein Show, Peer-to-Peer Conversations, which airs on Bloomberg Television at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on Wednesdays. You can also hear it on Bloomberg Radio on Friday evenings at 5 p.m. and multiple times on Saturday. David Rubenstein, of course, the co-founder and co-CEO of the Carlyle Group, and we're going to talk about some changes there in just a, a moment. But Let's uh, start with the episode that airs this week. David, great to speak with you uh, once again. Uh, what did you say about uh, taking over this company that uh, is still relatively fairly young, has had only two chief executives before him? What did he learn from Bill Gates and from Steve Ballmer when he assumed that job? Well, both of them said that, that he should be his own person. He shouldn't just do what they wanted him to do. And so he very much... Uh, 
began to change the culture of the organization, made it much more of a collaborative organization, much more cooperative with partners on the outside and, and inside the various silos that, they, that uh, Microsoft had. And the result has been $250 billion of increased market cap since he's taken over. It's really astounding. You know, we, we, we tend to talk a lot about the culture at a company like Apple or, or a company like Facebook. For a long time, we didn't talk about the culture uh, at Microsoft. What was it like, and, and, and how did he change it? How is it different today than it was under, say, Mr. Ballmer? The culture was one, apparently, I didn't work there, but from talking to him and others, it was one of silos. There were many different people working on things, and they didn't collaborate with each other. It was also a culture where people didn't um, tell each other what they were doing. And, and also, it was a culture where they depended on a cash cow, really, Windows and Office products, and really everything else was not that important, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. He changed that. He made other things more important to the, to the uh, company's uh, bottom line. He also made people cooperate with each other, talk to each other. Did he speak to you, David, about not so much the breakup of the company, but a careful analysis of use of capital and what you do with the various shades of Microsoft? Yes, um, he did make uh, some very large acquisitions. The principal one is LinkedIn, which gives them exposure to about 500,000 potential customers, because I guess that's how many people use the LinkedIn service. And he did close down uh, a, the largest acquisition that had been made before that, which was uh, Nokia, and uh, that one didn't work in his view. Um, he, Microsoft has a great deal of cash, like uh, Amazon does and Apple and, and yeah. Facebook and Google, but he's used it pretty judiciously. I just thought of a uh, an idea, David Gurra, David Rubenstein on LinkedIn. That would be something. <laughs> well, uh, I don't well, know. If he, I have, are you on it? Are you on it, David? I, 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 I am not on it, but uh, <clears throat> maybe I should get on it soon. I don't know. There you go. Ray Dalio with us yesterday. I know he uses the platform often to uh, to, to deliver his, his commentary. Let me ask you just about him as a person. Uh, you talk a lot about empathy and how he developed uh, empathy. I mentioned he was born in Hyderabad, moved to the, to the U.S. What did, you, what did you learn about his life story, how he got to where he is and how he was shaped uh, as an individual? Well, his father was fairly demanding, and uh, as was his mother. They're both very uh, well-educated people. But he really came to the United States and really built a career on his own. And his original goal was to be a cricket player, but he realized that wasn't going to work. Uh, I think empathy was uh, increased when he realized uh, uh, the personal situation he faced. His first son was born uh, with cerebral palsy. And his son has been a quadriplegic for his entire life. He's now 21 years old and always lived at home. He and his wife always taking care of uh, their, their child. And um, I think that produced a great deal of empathy. David, uh, have you and Lloyd Blankfein ever talked about the U.S. Post Office? Didn't both of you had fathers who were in the Postal Service? We did. Have you ever we talked did. to Lloyd about that? I did. In my interview with him, uh, which was one of the first uh, interviews I did on the yeah. show, I did. Uh, but her fathers were not male uh, carriers, they were clerks who filed the mail, and uh, yeah. very sympathetic uh, to his uh, situation. People, I don't think, know your path in your philanthropy. What is the emotion that David Rubenstein has with the important announcements this week of a changing of the guard at your shop? Well, when you start any company, uh, you um, obviously want it to succeed. When it does succeed, you take pride in it. Um, you know, I, I didn't feel that I wanted to, to die uh, in the same job, and so I thought an appropriate age might 
co-CEO and I, Bill Conway, would step back and become co-executive chair. So we're very involved. We're still the largest shareholders in the firm and very large investors in the firm. But we have the ability to do some other things now, and that will be helpful. Uh, the advantage of doing this while you're at their age is you get to see your obituary while you're alive, because I've been reading the articles today, and I know what people are going to say about me before when I die, and now I've got a chance to already see it. David, what is it about the, the prefix co? <laughs> That's uh, in, grim. Yeah, I love that as well. The, the prefix co in private equity. I look at so many of, of, of your competitors. I look at Carlisle, and it seems like uh, this has been the model that's been implemented and used successfully. Why, why does that dual model work so well in private equity in particular? Well, it's worked because uh, you have really two major tasks in private equity. One is investing and overseeing the assets, and the other is administering the firm, raising the money, dealing with all the administrative issues. And so it has seemed to work pretty well. So you have co's in many of the large firms, and I think it's worked pretty well. It's it's sort of the the way that your firm uh, evolved organically, and and I, I wonder now that you you look back on what you've done thus far, and certainly not not writing an obituary here for your professional uh, career. What do you make of, of of how far this company has come, and 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 what you thought it might be when you were starting out? Well, if you go back and look at the companies that are the great companies today, Amazon, Apple. Microsoft, Facebook, Google, and so forth. I wouldn't compare the private equity firms to them. But if you go back and look what the founders thought they were going to create, it was very modest compared to what actually they turned out to be. The same is true of our firm or other private equity firms. We all had very modest ambitions. And as the world of private equity grew, we grew with it and perhaps led it. But so none of us thought we would have these global uh, behemoths, but, but it's worked out that way. How did you get from you know, forget about the, the the stop at corporate law how did you get from writing the problem of delay in tort recovery and the british interim payment scheme right. at chicago law to carlisle what was that path well, I wasn't very good at the other things I tried to do. I, uh, you've done very good research on my law review oh, really? article at the University of Chicago. Um, I think you're the first person that has read it or heard about it in the last uh, 40 years. Be careful years who says I've read Bravo. it. <laughs> now i got to go read it. But, well, I can put you to sleep. But, but uh, basically, I wasn't that good as a lawyer, to be honest. I didn't have the skill set that made me a great lawyer. When I worked in government, I managed to get inflation to 19%. Nobody really wanted me to, to stay. And so I had to do something else. And the truth is... All kidding aside, if you're really great at something, you'll probably keep doing it. I wasn't that great at it, at the things I was doing, so I had a chance to do other things, and that worked out well for me. I mentioned Ray Dalio a moment ago. Let me ask you a question about Carlisle culture. As you move on to this this new position, he talked a lot about how he shaped that company and his put his principles into print so that they they can continue. Uh, as you move into this new position, is the flavor of Carlisle going to remain the same? Do you think? Well, we didn't bring in outsiders, so we really have people in the firm who have our culture. And and it's important to uh, maintain the culture. The trick in any great organization, one that really survives, is whether the culture that was established by the founders can be um, continued, though with some modifications. We think the culture will be continued. Our culture has been cooperative, work with each other, put the investors first, and make certain that, uh, in the end, we're doing something useful for society. David, always a pleasure. Thank you very much. David Rubenstein, the co-CEO, co-founder of the Carlisle Group, of course, host of David Rubenstein's show, Peer-to-Peer Conversations, which airs uh, on Bloomberg Television Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. and airs on Bloomberg Radio uh, at 5 p.m. Friday. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. 
before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.